Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome to the Kidney Commute, an interprofessional National Kidney Foundation podcast. I am Dr. Kelly Beers, a nephrologist at Albany Medical College in Albany, New York, and it is my pleasure to be leading today's discussion about women's health in the kidney. Today, we will focus on issues specific to women who have undergone a kidney transplant. Our panelists today are Hi, I'm Sylvie Shaw. I'm a transplant nephrologist at the University of Cincinnati. Hi, my name is Amanda Trinzi, and I'm a patient with kidney disease and recipient of a kidney transplant. Hi, I'm Lisa Cassia. I'm the senior research nurse coordinator for the Transplant Pregnancy Registry International. Hi, I'm Heather Haynes, and I'm a transplant pharmacist at the University of Cincinnati. Hi, I'm Leah Madden. I'm a transplant coordinator at the University of Wisconsin Hospital. My name is Amanda Early, and I'm a social worker in the transplant department at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, working with the kidney and pancreas patients. Great. So to kick things off, Amanda, can you describe for our listeners some of the issues you encountered as a woman with a kidney transplant? Yes, I had kidney disease. I have polycystic kidney disease, and I have struggled with that since I was a late teen. And I would say I was fortunate enough to not encounter very many issues as in in my everyday life at all until getting towards the end of my um, journey with my native kidneys and when my kidneys started to decline and I needed a transplant. However, when I got into my 20s is when I really started to encounter some issues as a woman with kidney disease and then later with a kidney transplant when I started to think about family planning and what that meant for reproduction um, and dealing with kidney disease and transplant. Sylvie, how do you provide family planning counseling to your female patients with a kidney transplant? Thanks, Kelly, for the question. So family planning counsel is very important in patients who are kidney transplant. And there are a few reasons for it. The first is there is high incidence of unplanned pregnancy in women who have kidney transplant. The second thing is women with kidney transplant do have high risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, increased risk of preeclampsia, increased risk of preterm births, and increased risk of low birth weight babies as well. And therefore family counseling is important. The third thing is, Women with kidney transplant are on medications like mycophenolate, which is teratogenic. So therefore family planning counseling becomes really important. So basically whenever I have a patient in clinic, I start educating them right at the time of their transplant evaluation, letting them know about the higher risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes, them being on teratogenic medications, The other important thing is there is also return of fertility with kidney transplant. So that is another important education which I uh, provide to these patients and then provide them the resources and educate them about various contraceptive methods which would be best for them. 
Perfect. Yeah. Hopefully a lot of our transplant nephrology colleagues are also doing those same counseling for our women of reproductive age, as far as the impact that their transplant is going to have on their fertility. For women who do want to start planning pregnancies, how soon after a transplant can a woman safely attempt to become pregnant? So when women have kidney disease or when they're on dialysis, usually there is impairment of fertility because of various hormonal changes, which takes place with chronic kidney disease. However, with kidney transplant, there is return of fertility, and this can occur within six to eight weeks of getting a transplant. So what that means is they will start having normal menstrual cycles, the hormonal disruptions which occurred with chronic kidney disease revert back. So they will start having normal levels of estrogen and progesterone, their sexual drive will return back. So this is something which we always tell our patients. Now, how soon they can conceive, we usually tell them to wait at least one year. And the reason is because within the first year, they are on medications such as valcite, which can be teratogenic. Also, there is higher risk of graft dysfunction, infections, et cetera. And we also want to make sure that they have been stable in the first year. So their allograft function should be stable. Their blood pressure should be well controlled. They should not have proteinuria. Their diabetes should be well controlled. So we want to make sure that they are, uh, they are at low risk when they are attempting conception. So wait for at least one year after getting a kidney transplant. So it sounds like you really counsel them up front to have some very solid form of contraception for that first year to help prevent an unwanted pregnancy or an unplanned pregnancy. And then after a year is when women can begin to start trying to conceive. That's absolutely right. Within the first year, it's very important for them to be on some sort of contraception. Also, it is important that, that they're on a contraception which has low failure rates and which have to be individualized based on the risk factors. For example, if they have history of hypertension or if they have history of lupus nephritis with history of thrombosis, they cannot be on combined oral contraceptive pills. So that's a contraindication. So we have to make sure that for each woman, they are on an ideal contraception based on the risk factors. I also want to emphasize that barrier contraception and condoms we don't recommend because again, they have a high failure rate. And as we discussed before, our whole goal is to prevent unintentional pregnancy. So we want to make sure they are on the best contraception which is available for them. What do you typically suggest? So it depends on each patient profile, but overall, intrauterine devices and progesterone-only methods are the most commonly suggested for women with kidney transplant, just because looking at their overall risk profile, those are the best ones which are available. So those are the ones which we suggest, either intrauterine device or progesterone-only methods. Absolutely, makes sense. Amanda, how did your transplant impact your fertility? Thankfully, it, it really did not. Following my transplant, I had very regular cycles before transplant and they continued after transplant. Uh, like Sylvie said, I waited approximately 18 months, maybe a little bit more closer to the two-year mark before I conceived again and followed all the rules that my doctor, all of the counseling that my doctor provided for me and switched my medications well in advance, waited to see how the medications interacted with 
me and how my, my graph function performed after I switched my medications. I think I waited about four to five months, maybe even six, and then became pregnant right away. So I was very lucky in that respect. Right. Yeah, you were lucky. On the topic of medications, Heather, as a pharmacist, what medication changes are recommended in women with a kidney transplant who are planning to start a family or who are already pregnant? When transplant recipients are wanting to get pregnant or already pregnant, it is really important to take a close look at their medications as some of the immunosuppression medications, as well as other medications that they're on, can be teratogenic to the baby. So it's important to make sure that they're on the safest drugs for both the mother and the child. Specifically talking about the immunosuppression medications, um, many patients are on a combination of multiple drugs. The backbone really to immunosuppression medications are the calcineurin inhibitors, and that includes both tacrolimus and cyclosporin. Thankfully, these are considered safe in pregnancy. There have been some studies that show there can be a slightly higher risk for preterm delivery and miscarriages in transplant recipients on immunosuppression medications. However, the rates are um, pretty similar to the normal population, and so calcineurin inhibitors can be continued during pregnancy. One of the things that we do have to think about specifically with the tacrolimus and cyclosporin is they are dosed based on levels. And so whenever a mother becomes pregnant, they are gaining weight with the baby. And so their dose may need to be adjusted throughout their pregnancy. And so it is recommended to monitor their levels a little bit more closely whenever they are pregnant. Some of the other medications that patients can be on include mycophenolate. And this is teratogenic to fetuses. And so it is recommended to stop that medication before really getting pregnant. So it's recommended to stop at least six weeks before coming, becoming pregnant. That way that medication can completely get out of the mother's body. That way it doesn't affect the um, child at all. With that, we can switch to another similar medication called azathioprine. And this one has been shown to be safer in pregnancy. There are some concerns with this medication that it can, it does cross the placenta. And so the, um, the fetus is receiving some of this medication. And so um, monitoring the other's white blood cell count and also once the baby's born, monitoring their white blood cell count as well is important, um, but it has been shown to be safe in pregnancy. And then next, prednisone is another medication that a lot of transplant recipients are on, and this is safe to be continued during pregnancy. It is recommended to try and keep it a lower dose. So most of our patients are on a maintenance prednisone of around five milligrams every day. And so that's perfectly safe. If patients do develop rejection during their pregnancy, it is okay to do higher doses of prednisone, but again, just monitoring the mother and baby throughout the high doses of steroids. Some of the other medications that we use for immunosuppression include mTOR inhibitors, like everolimus or serolimus. Um, this is not recommended to be used during pregnancy. So if any patient is on those medications, it is recommended to transition them from an mTOR inhibitor to a calcineurin inhibitor. The other medication is Bilatacept, with the, which is a newer medication that is being used some of our transplant recipients. This one is not known whether or not it does cause harm to the fetus. Um, however, since there are not too much data out there, it is recommended to switch patients off the latticep to a calcineurin inhibitor before they become pregnant to ensure that they are on the safest medications for their babies. So really being on a calcineurin inhibitor, switching from mycophenolate to azathioprine, and then continuing on the steroids is okay for these patients. Great. That's an awesome overview. Back to the calcineurin inhibitor topic, how often do you recommend those levels be checked and does the goal trough level change for a woman who's pregnant or is it the same as when someone's not pregnant? That's a great question. 
So I would recommend that in the first trimester to monitor them weekly to every other week. And then once they get onto a stable dose, then it can go out a little bit further. But again, as the mother is gaining more weight into the second and third trimester, it is important to you know, monitor them, I would say, every you know, couple of weeks. As far as the goal level, it does decrease a little bit. Um, you want to be on the lowest possible level to help prevent rejection, but also keeping that level as low as possible for the child. It really is patient specific. It's not like we have a specific goal level in mind, but it is patient specific. If they don't have a history of rejection and we aren't co too concerned about that, then we can lower the tacrolimus level a little bit whenever they are pregnant, you know, maintain a little bit lower levels then. And then again, after they do give birth, then we do have to think about, you know, monitoring the tacrolimus levels again, you know, quick, more often than we might have before, just because they, again, have lost that weight, have, you know, given birth to a baby. And so monitoring more often than as well. Excellent. Thank you. Sylvie, how do you specifically monitor the function of the graft during pregnancy? And if there is a possible rejection, how would you treat that? So one thing is we have to make sure that a woman with kidney transplant has minimal risk factors or is at lower risk when they want to get pregnant. And for that, the graft function, serum creatinine is less than 1.5. They have no proteinuria, hypertension is well controlled, and they had no episodes of recent rejection. What I tell them is if their creatinine is 1.5 or more, they do have high risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. Regarding monitoring, it depends upon their baseline creatinine, but usually do it every four weeks if they are at lower risk. If creatinine is less than 1.5, then I usually do them at four weeks. However, if we see a change in the trend in creatinine, if it's worsening, then we would monitor it more frequently. Regarding how we treat rejection, so we do have limited options with regards to treating rejection just because some of these medications are teratogenic, but steroids are safe to use. We do use high-dose high steroids in case they have an acute cellular rejection. If they have an antibody-mediated rejection or a mixed rejection, again, our options are limited. We can use steroids. Thymoglobulin, again, has not been well studied, but there are a few case reports which have used them successfully. So it just depends upon the overall clinical picture, the age of gestation, how soon was the rejection, and how bad was the rejection. But steroids are the most commonly used to treat rejection. How common is rejection in someone who's pregnant? Because the pregnant woman's immune system is altered, correct? So does that impact risk of rejection? So the frequency of rejection depends on the allograft function. If their creatinine, if their baseline creatinine is normal or less than 1.5, we don't see it frequently. Their allograft function stays more or less stable during the course of pregnancy. However, if they have a higher baseline creatinine to start with, then we may see worsening of their creatinine during the course of pregnancy. That may indicate rejection. Again, it's a challenge to diagnose rejection in a woman with kidney transplant because they may have other causes for developing elevated creatinine as well, which could be either preeclampsia or it could just be worsening of allograft function. The answer is with higher creatinine, it is not less frequent, the possibility of seeing rejection. Got it. So moving on slightly, Heather, with the current COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of pregnant women have questions about the safety of getting various vaccines and also 
way that they could be treated if they were to develop COVID when they were pregnant. Can you talk to the safety of the COVID-19 vaccine for our transplant patients who are to become pregnant and also the different therapeutic options for women who unfortunately do contract COVID when they are pregnant? The COVID vaccine is safe in pregnancy. There have been several studies that have shown um, no increased risk of preterm delivery or any abnormalities to the child. So it is recommended to get a COVID vaccine if you are needing a COVID-19 vaccine while pregnant and it is safe. And you do have to think about as well, if your body is creating these antibodies to COVID-19, then they can also be given to the child as well. So whenever they are born, they could also have some already preformed COVID-19 antibodies as well from the mother. So it is definitely recommended and safe to get a COVID-19 vaccine during pregnancy. As far as some of the treatments for COVID-19, there are antibodies that are on the market currently for treatment, and these are safe in pregnancy. So they are just like, you're in, since your body can't make the antibodies if you're on immunosuppression and you might have difficulty with that, then you can get these preformed antibodies as an infusion, and they allow your body to help fight off the infection. And these are considered safe in pregnancy as well. And then another option specifically for patients who have a transplant and are on immunosuppression medications is an injection of antibodies and it's called Evusheld. And it is recommended in patients who are immunocompromised. And so here at the University of Cincinnati, we're trying to give it to all patients after their transplant. And so specifically patients who are wanting to get pregnant, I would recommend getting this injection and it's really just allowing the body to have some extra antibodies. So if they are unable to amount a good response to the vaccine, then this allows their body to get some extra antibodies to help fight off the COVID-19. And so I would really recommend getting the vaccine. If you do get sick while you're pregnant, getting antibody infusion is really important because there have been cases of more severe COVID-19 in pregnant patients that can lead to preterm delivery. And so it's really important to help prevent getting COVID-19 and then also taking as many measures as possible to help prevent severe infections. Great. Thank you so much. Switching gears, Lisa, in your role as a nurse, what are your female patients asking you about transplant and their reproductive health and how do you counsel them? And also when do you refer them to other members of the interdisciplinary team? One of the first basic questions that people have is, can I become pregnant after my transplant? Um, I, I think it's really important. And we even hear it from parents of pediatric recipients. You know, that's one of their first questions. And we think about quality of life for patients after transplant. And for many, becoming a parent is part of that quality of life. And I think involving the interdisciplinary team as soon as possible is important because there's so many factors. And I think with these patients, having a planned pregnancy is so key to a good outcome. Because like Sylvie said, we want patients to have good stable graft function. And we know if they have good stable graft function, there's gonna be a good outcome. So I think involving the obstetrical team early on to see if there's anything from their vantage point that might need to be changed regarding medications. Um, and also the pharmacist, the nephrologist, everybody involved at the get-go and being on the same page for the recipient too, because we know pregnancy is not necessarily good for every patient either, because there are those that have higher creatinine or a history of rejection that pregnancy might not be in their best interest. Amanda, you were lucky enough to have two pretty healthy pregnancies after your transplant. 
what surprised you about your experience with becoming pregnant after you had your transplant? That's a really good question because I would say going into the pregnancy, I had a lot of fear because there's a lot of unknown. Like Lisa just said, the question is, can I get pregnant? What's going to happen to me? Is my kidney going to fail? Should I do this? Is it worth it? What is my donor going to think? So there's a lot that goes on um, in a transplant recipient's mind when they decide to become pregnant. And I think Lisa, you hit the nail on the head with saying, we want a planned pregnancy, right? We want all our ducks in a row. We want all our medications, our lab stable, everything really locked in tight for when we decide, okay, I'm ready. I want to get pregnant. And that's how I was. And that was really important to me. I had several surprises in my experience of becoming pregnant post-transplant. First and foremost, that I was able to deliver two healthy babies almost to full term after receiving a kidney transplant. My first daughter after transplant was delivered at 37 weeks, a planned induction because everything was going well um, and they just wanted to keep everything going well. And my second daughter post-transplant was delivered again in a planned induction at 34 weeks. Again, she was healthy, everything is great, but they wanted to preserve my kidney function and make sure I was remaining healthy. One other really big surprise that I had after becoming pregnant post-transplant was a condition I developed in both pregnancies post-transplant, which was a severe anemia and a decreased red blood count levels and the need for ARNS injections. In my first pregnancy post-transplant, I started seeing these lab trends where my red blood counts are going down, um, my hematocrit, my hemoglobin, and no one knows what's going on. So that was really frustrating at first. I got sent to a hematologist. He didn't know what to do with me. My nephrologist at the time didn't really know what was going on. The OB didn't know what was going on. And then finally, my transplant nephrology team at Mass General connected with someone in the UK that specialized in pregnancy post-transplant and they knew exactly what this was. They knew what to do. I started ARNS injections and my levels were right back to normal uh, by the day I went in to deliver. So that was a really big surprise and I was definitely ready for it in my second pregnancy and was able to proactively start ARNS injections. But I flagged that because as part of a support group I'm in, many women raise this question and they're like I did the first time around, they're running around to these different doctors and teams trying to figure out what's wrong and not getting any answers. And then I would just say, lastly, I was surprised that my tacrolimus levels fluctuated so much and the need to significantly increase my dosing for that medication. I think at the peak of my pregnancy, I was probably on 16 milligrams of tacrolimus a day, which was pretty high for me. Um, I'm someone who's usually a, a three and three or a four and three type of gal. So eight and eight was a lot, um, but again, didn't really matter. Do you do what you have to do? And everyone was healthy and safe. Yeah, going back to the anemia issue, you know, I think that one of the purposes of this podcast is to really kind of raise awareness to some of these issues and and address how as an interdisciplinary team caring for our kidney disease patients, we can raise the awareness and make sure people people know who to turn to and what the resources are so that our patients get the best possible care and don't feel like they just have answers without any solutions. And we want providers to know that this is something that is commonly seen in our women who have kidney transplants and then become pregnant. And it needs to be addressed because obviously the anemia isn't good for mom or for baby. 
Sylvie, what is the difference in pregnancy outcomes in women who have transplants compared to women who are on dialysis? So women with kidney uh, transplant have better outcomes as compared to women who are on dialysis or who have chronic kidney disease stages three to five. This is something we always counsel our patients that if they can wait and if they have a transplant plan, they should uh, definitely wait to conceive after the transplant. So for women with kidney transplants, the live birth rate is very much similar or actually better than the general population. There's a selection bias in that population because most of the transplant patients who decide to go ahead with pregnancy are healthier and have a stable allograft function. The other thing is uh, women with kidney transplants, have they do have higher risk of preterm births and low birth weight babies, but that risk is lower than women who are on dialysis. And as Amanda mentioned that her babies were born at term, which is great. Women on dialysis and with chronic kidney disease stages four to five do have high risk of miscarriages, stillbirth and neonatal mortality as well. However, women with kidney transplants do not have that higher risk, especially if they don't have any risk factors that is present. The other important thing is regarding preeclampsia. So the risk is higher in both, both with women with kidney transplants and women who are on dialysis. However, the risk of preeclampsia is significantly lower for women with kidney transplants as compared to women who are on dialysis. Okay, now switching gears again. This is a really topical topic given the current shortage of formula in this country. Sylvie, how do you counsel patients who wish to breastfeed and how do you address how these women are gonna feed their children overall? So we encourage women to breastfeed. It is safe to breastfeed for women who are, or who are on kidney transplant. And we encourage it just because of overall benefits of breastfeeding that we all know about. We just have to make sure that the medications they are taking are safe and Heather may be highlighting them more, but it is safe to breastfeed after you receive a kidney transplant. And that is what we tell our patients. So yeah, going to you, Heather, what do you tell patients? What medications can you not take while you're breastfeeding? How do you counsel patients who do wish to breastfeed? Uh, like Sylvie said, breastfeeding on a lot of the immunosuppression medications are safe. So um, we already talked about what immunosuppression medications was safe and wasn't safe during pregnancy. And so um, these are pretty much the same going into breastfeeding. So the calcineur inhibitors, specifically tacrolimus, is safe to use while breastfeeding. And then azathioprine is also safe to use. Um, like I was talking about before, there are some reports of lower white blood cell counts in infants who are breastfeeding with um, mothers who are on the azathioprine. So having a little closer monitoring for these infants is recommended. Um, and then steroids, again, is also okay to use during pregnancy. So they can stay on the immunosuppression medications that they were taking while they were pregnant and continue those during breastfeeding. However, there are some other medications such as blood pressure medications and different medications that the mother might have been on during pregnancy that might not necessarily be okay during breastfeeding. And so it is still important to look at all of the medications closely when going from being pregnant to breastfeeding. Like I said, specifically looking at some of the blood pressure medications like ACE inhibitors are not allowed during pregnancy, but are okay during breastfeeding. And then looking at the different beta blockers like atenolol isn't recommended during breastfeeding feeding, but you can take propranolol. So just really taking a close look at the different medications that the mother might be on um, whenever transitioning from being pregnant to breastfeeding is important. 
And Amanda, I know you unfortunately were not able to breastfeed. And I, I think really racking my brain right now, trying to think if I've had any patients who had a transplant, had a baby who were able to breastfeed. And I don't honestly think I have. And it's all been a situation where for whatever reason, people have been on medications that they either they didn't feel comfortable or we together didn't feel comfortable with them breastfeeding. Can you talk to your experience with that? That's correct. I did not breastfeed actually with any of my children. I have three children and because it was due because of the blood pressure medication that I was on at the time. When I switched off my ACE inhibitor to become pregnant, I had a hard time finding a medication that I felt good on and that worked well to control my blood pressure. And the one that I ended up on, Atenolol, unfortunately is not recommended for breastfeeding. So I did not breastfeed in any of my pregnancies because of that. And I'll just remind everyone that fed is best and we will all feed our children whatever way works best for us. And that's another important conversation to have with your provider, with your patients. And hopefully this formula shortage will go away soon because we've got a lot of babies out there that need their food. All right. Changing gears again, Lisa, have you participated in any care coordination with obstetrics or maternal fetal medicine, as well as with nephrologists or other providers? I think it's important to have delineated roles for these patients because I have, and I think, um, you know, the transplant team needs to monitor the transplant and the calcineurin inhibitor levels. And the obstetric team is there for the fetus and the well-being of the mom. And it's very important for everybody to talk to each other. And I think sometimes the nurse or the transplant coordinator can be the um, key connector among those groups. So it's really important to have coordinated care so that things don't get missed too. Like Amanda said, like when the hemoglobin goes down to make sure that someone's aware of it and it's being treated and recognized. Uh, so I think that's very important also. Now, Leah, transplant coordinators are some of the most important people when it comes to transplant patients. I know they really, really rely on you. Can you describe the role that you play when a patient would like to become pregnant and throughout their pregnancy as a transplant coordinator? Absolutely. One of the most important things that we do is really counsel patients up front, especially regarding the use of contraception immediately post-transplant. As multiple people have already discussed, obviously, the medications can play a role in the fetus, so it is really important to be using contraception post-transplant, so we definitely have multiple discussions with patients about that. We also encourage them to discuss with their provider when they're ready to start family planning, um, so that way, you know, their medications can be adjusted or stopped if needed or changed. We also encourage them to connect with a high-risk OB. As Lisa mentioned, really everyone kind of having delineated roles and being involved in the high-risk OB just, you know, helps to make sure that we are able to communicate with someone with a lot of experience for the baby delivery and things like that. So it really just helps the overall pregnancy. We also do encourage our patients to connect with the transplant registry if they have not already done so just for long-term tracking and things as well. And again, as everyone else has mentioned, we follow their labs frequently just to see their long-term kidney function. We follow their labs, you know, frequently during the pregnancy and after the pregnancy as well due to the immune response. And then 
things such as their calcineurins or things need to be adjusted or blood pressure medications or things like that. We really have definitely had uh, multiple patients that have had successful births after transplant and have done quite well. Great, thank you. Now a question for our social worker, Amanda. What sort of support do women with kidney transplants specifically require when it comes to their sexual health and family planning? We do start the discussion about family planning during the evaluation process to determine if having a child is a future goal for the patient. It is more of a brief discussion since it's held during the pre-transplant evaluation phase. It's a conversation that we would rediscuss post-transplant as providers here do advise that patients wait at least a year post-transplant before trying to conceive. It also allows for conversations about patients using and having access to appropriate contraceptives. If they're not ready to start family planning, we can also review the importance of patients notifying the transplant provider prior to starting to conceive so that the provider can have further discussion with patient. As far as social support, we do offer several options here, including an in-person support group, which is restarting after you know a temporary hiatus thanks to COVID. <laughs> We also have an online community where patients can pose questions in an informal setting. We do have a peer support pairing where we can connect patients with similar experiences. While the peer support pairing is often pairing a pre-patient with a post-patient, it also can be utilized with connecting patients that have experienced pregnancy after transplant. And the same with the support group and online community. It is open to all transplant patients, but it definitely can be utilized for questions about pregnancy after transplant. Great, thank you. Lisa, what can the Transplant Pregnancy Registry International offer to our patients? The TPRI, as I'll refer to it, is available with data. Our annual report every year, we break down the different outcomes and we try and do specific abstracts. So this year we looked at patients who used assisted reproductive technologies or used IVF in order to become pregnant. So if someone wants to ask about how patients did, we did um, a study looking at that. We've done studies looking at people who've had more than one pregnancy after their transplant, like Amanda. And once again, if you have stable transplant function, having more than one pregnancy is probably going to be okay. And, you know, when I first started doing this many years ago, I heard a lot of patients say, well, my nephrologist told me I could have one, but only one. You weren't allowed to have more than one pregnancy. And we also look at maternal age. We've looked at that. And then even more specific topics of what the patient's original disease was. So looking at patients who've had lupus compared to other types of kidney disease. So we really want to provide patients with the most up-to-date information about pregnancy after transplantation. We didn't even get into talking about IVF and other reproductive <laughs> assistance programs, but that's another whole topic that is really important for these patients and might be interesting to look into more later on. One thing I would echo with that is just if patients are started on new medications, obviously to just make sure their provider's aware. Absolutely. I think one of the things that we've talked a lot about is how important it is to have this interdisciplinary conversation, but also to combine all of the, the team members. So not just the nephrology team and the transplant team, but including OB, MFM, and really having that good communication is going to be so important for having the best possible outcomes that we have. And Amanda, 
From a social work perspective, are there any specific resources you have available to help patients who are struggling with conception, experiencing pregnancy loss, or dealing with postpartum depression? If a patient's already connected with our Women's Health Center here at University of Cincinnati Medical Center for their prenatal care, um, the patient would actually have additional support from the social workers in that department as well that specialize in that area. So we have been able to collaborate with them on offering resources for patients experiencing pregnancy loss and postpartum depression. There's also additional local counseling agencies that we would be able to refer if a patient's not interested in those resources, or perhaps they're not even connected with the Women's Health Center program. But obviously, these resources would vary based on where the patient resides. Now, I know, Amanda, you have used the TPRI. You want to talk to your experience with that and any other resources you found particularly helpful that you would like to share? Sure. I am a huge fan of the TPRI. Back in 2013, when I first started my journey and starting my family before I had my transplant, I had a very similar experience where I went to my nephrologist and the answer was, maybe you'll have a baby, maybe you won't, maybe you should just adopt. And there weren't a lot of answers, lots of fear, not a lot of answers. That's not how I operate. I need data. So the TPRI is really great in that respect, because like Lisa said, they have all the data, they have the studies, they can show you outcomes. And to me, that was what I needed to make my own personal choice and my own personal decision with my family to move forward in becoming pregnant. So the TPRI has been a huge support system for me, a huge resource. And I would recommend any woman or man, you know, that if your family is looking to get pregnant to call them up and get all the information from them. I also have a online private Facebook group that I belong to that is, I think, affiliated with the TPRI in some way. They're not, I don't think you're connected, but they, they, they follow each other. Um, and the TPRI chimes in and, and offers information when needed. But this online support system has been really helpful too, because it just gives women an opportunity to ask questions freely. Hey, I'm going through this. Have you gone through this? Have you, when I was having this anemia issue in 2017, there were other women that were experiencing the same thing. And they said, Hey, this is what I found, or this is what I treatment I'm going through. And in, in turn, I'm able to now write on these conversations. When I see the questions, Hey, I went through this, do this, this, and this, ask these questions. And it's just a group helping each other navigate a really complicated, scary, emotional journey. And then lastly, I think finding a healthcare provider, a transplant nephrologist that is going to be your advocate and who's educated in pregnancy following transplant is extremely important because if you don't have that person in your corner, you're very alone. If you can get that, that's great. I was able to get that in my last pregnancy, but I realized that's not the case for everyone. So in those instances where you don't have that advocate or the interdisciplinary team or organizations like the TPRI and these online support systems literally become your, your lifeline and your only door into that interdisciplinary focus, really. Lisa, can you share how people can find the TPRI? Yes, I can. So um, our website is just uh, www.transplantpregnancyregistry.org. Either myself or another nurse will answer any questions. We, like I said, have an annual report that I'll send out and any published studies we're happy to send out to patients. Since I've been doing this a long time, I might even remember 
a study we did 10 years ago, you know, looking at a specific outcome that someone's looking for. We are privileged to talk to people like Amanda, and it's through their generosity that we've been able to kind of figure out that mycophenolate was a teratogen. We had historical outcomes of patients just on calcineurin inhibitors and azathioprine that we were able to compare the outcomes and figure out that there was a problem with mycophenolate. So we're very grateful to the thousands of patients that we've talked to as well. So we're happy to send any information at any time. And if I can just make a quick plug to any women that are listening that are pregnant or have had children post-transplant, please call Lisa and become a part of the registry. It's anonymous. No one knows who you are, but you can help educate other people and contribute to the data sharing. So Amanda, did you notice any difference in your overall care after you had a transplant? And do you have suggestions on how this care can be improved from the patient perspective? You know, Kelly, I just think that the interdisciplinary focus is is the key to helping women navigate post-transplant reproduction because as I described in the couple of questions we talked about earlier, there, there's different levers that get pulled. And, you know, the anemia thing that I had sent me on a goose chase to all these hematology experts. And they're looking at me like I had five heads, like, why are you here? Why are we looking at you? And, you know, I'm like, I don't know, someone sent me here. So I just think having the interdisciplinary focus is really just the most important thing. And also at some high level or cursory level, having all transplant nephrologists educated on pregnancy is also important because you don't know who your patients are going to be. And while we are in the minority, I would say, of who nephrologists see generally and who transplant nephrologists see, you will have the patients that are, you know, that want to become pregnant. And it's really important to at least either know something or be able to refer your patients to someone that can help them. Definitely. I wanted to give everyone an opportunity if there's any other comments anyone wanted to make or anything that you don't think that we addressed, if you have any closing thoughts before we wrap this podcast up. I just wanted to say, I think as Amanda said, education is the key. And this is also based on, we recently did a focus group study where we we were trying to understand patient perspectives on family planning. All of them, actually, the common theme we found out was education. They, they wanted more education from their providers, physicians, coordinators, and their interdisciplinary team. So that is something I really wanted to emphasize and stress on, and thank Amanda for sharing that. Great, thank you. Any other final comments? I think I just want to like reiterate what we've said, that planned pregnancy is best, because all of these patients are considered high risk. If patients want additional information, there is information out there. Um, There's several patient brochures that I can share with people as well. So really, um, I think even just the patient educating themselves prior to pregnancy can also help so they know what to expect kind of when they're expecting. All right. Well, I would like to thank all of our panel members for their contributions to this extremely important discussion. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us on this ride of the Kidney Commute. Remember that eligible audiences can earn continuing education credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. 
If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.